Hello and welcome to the Head First Podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien, I'm your host and creator of the Head First Podcast and the Head First Instagram page, which you can find using the handle Head First Zero. This podcast is here to bring you all things psychology and mental health, so check out the other episodes if you have an interest in psychology and in mental health. This podcast is sponsored by Spectrum Mental Health, who are a mental health company who do counseling and psychotherapy, as well as corporate psychology services. So I work within their clinical team. If you have any questions regarding the services that I provide or the services that Spectrum provide, you can email me at joeobrien at mentalhealth.ie or contact me through my Instagram page. This episode is episode number six. I'll be speaking with counseling psychologist, Dr. Molly Kate Richardson, about women who are involved in selling or exchanging sex and some of the kind of mental health issues that might be related to working in that industry. Molly Kate, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, really excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, I read through your dissertation and found it incredibly interesting. So really excited to, to get to speak to you. I guess initially it's important for everybody else to get to know you and what you do and what your background is. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a quick introduction as to who you are and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. Um, as you said, I'm a counselling psychologist and I work for Spectrum Mental Health as well. Um, I studied in Trinity College um, and I have a particular area of interest in working with people who've experienced trauma and people who struggle with their relationships, their bodies, and I guess women's issues in general. And that's kind of what inspired the research that I did. Um, So the research, as you said, it was a study with women involved in selling or exchanging sex and that was done as part of my doctorate qualification. So I was looking at how those women relate to their bodies and their sense of themselves and for them what it meant to be a woman. And I guess the aim of the study really was to kind of step into the world of the participants, to kind of step into their shoes and get a sense of what their lives were like and what their experiences are like. Okay, and I guess that's what I hope to kind of get to in this 30 or 40 minute podcast is to kind of help you turn their words and, and your interviews and your research into kind of delivering what it's like in, in their lives, I guess. So that's, I guess, what I, what I want to aim to, to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, so the title, Women Involved in Selling or Exchanging Sex, A Phenomenological Inquiry into the Body, the Self and the Meaning of Being a Woman. A, phenomenolog- a phenomenological study, first of all, what is that? Can you explain that to the people who are listening and, and maybe what kind of methods you used or, or you know, the kind of background as to what the study was? Yeah, definitely. Um, as I said, it, the aim of the study is to get into the participants' world and that is essentially what a phenomenological study is. Um, so the type of analysis I did was interpretive phenomenological analysis and it kind of links in pretty well with counselling psychology because you're trying to understand the individual, their experiences, what things are like for them. Okay, so it's moving away from kind of the number side of things and measuring everything systematically and understanding the people's experiences. Yeah, exactly. So I did interviews with the, the women that I met and had in my study. And so I asked questions, they were quite general questions around how do you relate to your body? How do you feel about your body? Tell me about your sense of yourself. 
um, and just really trying to understand things from their perspective without getting too specific. So I actually didn't ask specific questions around selling or exchanging sex, um, but it of course came up in the course of the, the interview. So really, yeah, the aim was to understand the relationships their bodies within the context of the fact that they're involved in selling or exchanging sex. But really what I wanted to get across throughout is that they are women before they are women who sell or exchange sex. And that's just the context that they're in. So I think before we kind of delve really deep into, I guess, the the, the details of what you kind of found in your study, um, it might be important to introduce some of the concepts that we're going to talk about. Um, I don't know, I think I'll, I'll maybe hand over to you because you know your, your study better. But if you want to run through some of the kind of main concepts or kind of the background areas that might be important to understand before we go into uh, what your study actually found. Yeah, um, definitely. I think first it's important to say that I did take a feminist perspective as I was going through my study. Okay. And I guess that's kind of the perspective I take on life in general. So just to say that that's what I'm coming from. <laughs> okay. Um, and when I'm talking, it's going to be based on the research that I did and the things I found in relation to those women, but also on the kind of general reading that I've done around the areas and how women relate to their bodies and how women might live in the world differently to men. I think that was, sorry, that was one of the things that came across to me when I did initially read it was how applicable all of these concepts were to, I guess, the wider community and not just the women that you've interviewed. So I think it's important regardless. Yeah, and that's exactly what I wanted to get across. So I kind of want to start the conversation and I want to get women thinking about how we relate to our bodies and how we live in our bodies and what impact that has on us in terms of mental health and in terms of how, of how we live in the world. Um, so yeah, to go back to your question on the different concepts initially, I guess the most important thing, um, and it's something that I think we don't often think about, is that we live and exist in the world through our bodies. So any experience that I have involves my body. And the body is said to mediate the relationship between myself and the world. And all the research nowadays is much more saying that the body, the self, sorry, is embodied. So that means that the body and self are connected. Um, And a way to think about that is the body is an object, but it's also a subject. So by saying it's an object, it means that it is an object that exists in the world, and yet it's also a subject in that it provides me with my subjective experience of the world as a whole. So to kind of break that down and maybe make it a little bit simpler, there's the body that I am, and then there's the body that I have. So the body that I am is my subjective thinking, feeling, sensing, experiencing body. And then the body that I have is the body that I see when I look in the mirror. It's the body that people see when they look at me. And that's the body as an object. Okay. So That makes sense to me. I'm hoping that that will make sense to, to people at home. But yeah. to kind of get a, a grasp on that, it's the idea that the body itself is, is linked to our entire experience. Mm-hmm. Not just that it's something that's separate from who you are as a person. Yeah. Would that be accurate? Exactly. Um, just on that, why do you think it's important to make sure or kind of ensure that, that our experiences are joint, to ensure that kind of the body and the self are, are connected? Or, or are there kind of downfalls to being disconnected from your body? Yeah, there are. Um, there's a lot of research kind of coming out at the moment, talking about the mental health issues that can come up when we don't have that sense of connection between our bodies and ourselves so things like anxiety depression eating disorders 
self-harm um, an increased level of body shame and interesting as, interestingly as well a decreased ability to be able to recognize your internal body sensations okay and we obviously know that that's quite important in, in the mental health yes. uh, area I guess in looking after your mental health I guess um, now I come from a background on health psychology and we know as well that I guess that is partly the study of how the body, body and mind interact. So I think that's a really important um, introductory concept. Um, what other concepts might be important uh, to, to look at before we get into the depths of, of the research? Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about the way that women live in the world through our bodies in a different way to men. Again, coming from that feminist perspective in that we live in a patriarchal society. Um, so... You know, research has shown that women are taught to live in our bodies and use our bodies in a different way to men. So there's an essay called Throwing Like a Girl by Iris Marion Young, um, and I can link it when we're finished here. But basically she talks about how women or girls are taught to take up less physical space and move differently to boys. So she talks about an example of if you get a girl and a boy of the same age and you give them a tennis ball or something... Um, if you ask the boy to throw the ball, he will, in general, use his whole body um, and try to get the ball as far as he can. Whereas if you give it to the girl, she sometimes will only use either her arm or even her wrist. So it's kind of getting at this idea that, she says, anyway, it's it's to do with society, that girls are taught to... That's, that's quite interesting that you use that specific example, because growing up playing sports, that's often, I guess sometimes an insult that's thrown at boys at a young age and mm. um, when they can't throw the ball that far that they throw like a girl so interesting mm. um do you think this is changing do you think the idea of the patriarchal society concept is changing because when i read your your research what jumped to mind was things like the I Weigh movement and people hitting back at Photoshop and, and uh, you know, the idea that, you know, only women wear makeup and, and the focus is always on their appearance. Do you think this is change? I know that it is very far away from, let's say, parity at the moment or being considered parity. But do you think it's moving in the right direction? Okay, so I know that these things are all definitely positive steps and those steps in the right direction and I think it shows that people are certainly starting to think about it a little more um, but I guess with things like the the eyeway movement and things like that again it's kind of looking at that body as an object so yeah it's being more inclusive and talking about you know more diverse body types and praising all bodies but it's still kind of talking about what they look like um, and I think the focus actually needs to move off that entirely um, and move back to people thinking about the body that I am, the you know, my home in a sense, yeah. the way I live and move the through the world. That, the value that somebody adds, like you said, to, to, to the world yeah. um, rather than what they look like. Yeah. And I think on that, it might be useful to explain a bit about objectification, objectification yeah, theory absolutely. then as well. Because um, I thought I've talked about that a lot in my research. So basically, an experience of objectification is 
one in which a person is seen as their body alone um, and attention isn't paid to the rest of the person. So it's kind of like when someone is reduced to being their body as an object, the body that is seen by other people, the body that I see in the mirror. And some people think that the only thing that is valuable or worth praising or worth commenting about you is your body and your appearance. And then that kind of gets into the idea of the female body existing as a sex object. It exists to be looked at and to be admired by men or other people. And I think the way the world is, we live in a world that kind of encourages that still. Um, 100%. I completely agree. I, it's an area that really, really irks me a little bit. Um, specifically being in this kind of bubble of social media time and, and being on Instagram an awful lot. Um there seems to be an awful lot of value that people place on themselves that that is their value and like your number of followers matters your number of likes matters um i know this is very much through the lens of somebody who does an awful lot of work on instagram but Mm -hmm. the value that people place seems to often be on their appearance and, and that really really gets me um one of the things that i experienced recently is i put like maybe 10, 15 hours into a specific post. I'm not going to say which one because somebody might feel bad about themselves because they have obviously done this, but they messaged me after me putting like 10 or 15 hours work into this mental health post and they said, beautiful eyes. And while I know that that, that means well, um, it off, like that to me kind of diminished or, or demeaned the work that I put into providing evidence-based mental health information and it kind of felt like it missed the point and and I know that obviously women are are far more objectified and and likely struggle with this a lot more than than any male would Um, but I still felt like I got a sense of of how how poor it is or how, how bad it feels to have yourself diminished down to your appearance rather than what you add to the world. Yeah, that's a great example. And, you know, it doesn't just happen to women, as you have seen. Yeah. Um, and in kind of linking that back to the theory then, so objectification theory that says that when you have experiences like that in which you are objectified by other people, we then end up self-objectifying because that's what we've kind of learned to do. How would you define self-objectifying? Um, well, I guess to to bring it back to the Instagram thing, it's by putting up pictures of your body um, with the intention of feeling good when you get a certain amount of likes or if you get praise for it. Okay. Um, and often it's kind of, it's it can be like an unconscious thing. Um, so would that be, for example, putting yourself in the position where you might be objectified or, or, or even kind yeah. of not deliberately going about it. I know you said it can be unconscious, but mm. but knowing that there's kind of a, a purpose or a motive for you framing things that way or putting things out that way, maybe. Yeah, it's like learning that the world or people or society rewards you when you do that and you will get praise and you will get encouragement. Um, That's really interesting because I remember another piece from your research was that things like movies for example, they kind of glorify um, the kind of idea of, for example, um, erotic dancers getting like money thrown at them and they're kind of in power and it's quite liberating for them. And obviously people are engaging in, in selling sex for a living. 
um, that we're going to cover later on, but there is that kind of glorification of it, right? There, there is that kind of sense that society and, and things in the movies and stuff, they, they make it out to be fantastic and empowering and liberating, but f- from your research, potentially, and, and from what I've seen, do you think that's the case? Um, it's kind of an interesting one because I think in situations like that and, you know, in some circumstances, you can think of it as, as the woman is sort of taking control or taking some power back because she's recognized that this is the way society is. And if she self-objectifies, then she will get certain rewards, for example, in sex work, money. Um so, but then again, on the other hand, that doesn't really consider like the actual psychological impact and the sense of disconnection from your body um, that can really come from that. And then all the psychological problems that can go along with that. So, so what are the, what are the kind of psychological, what is the psychological impact of objectification? And I guess following on from that, do you still see those mental health or issues or, or do these things, does objectification still correlate with, uh, correlate with mental health even if it's self-objectification? Yeah, so if you can think of it kind of as like a cycle of objectification. So you're objectified by society or by a person and then you learn to self-objectify um, and then that really is what causes the mental health issues if the research suggests that because if you are you know just objectified for example going back to your example um, you can recognize maybe that that's not okay you maybe feel a little bit annoyed you might feel upset but I think it's more when we kind of take that on objectify ourselves then and get caught in that cycle that's when the body shame the anxiety the depression the lack of a connection to our sense of self and um, that's when all that kind of starts. And some researchers have actually said that that can be a form of embodied trauma, getting stuck in that cycle. That's really interesting. Um, so just so I get this in my own head, you're saying that when, when people do, for example, get objectified and they, for example, take value from that or, or they feel good about being objectified that they will then maybe further objectify themselves or put themselves out there in that way so they receive that that feedback again yeah so if it's okay to link that to my study then um so selling sex could be seen as a form of self-objectifying um and then within that the women that i spoke to kind of talked about this sense of feeling as though they had some sort of power or trying to trying to almost convince themselves that they had power because they were choosing to do this, for want of a better word, or they said that they were choosing to do this. Um, however, when they actually started talking about it then, like there are so many issues that come up with it in terms of personal safety um, and all sorts of things like that. So really, ultimately, in selling sex, the man still has the power. Um, and there's an idea about the myth of control for women who sell sex. Um, so an Irish sex worker called Rachel Moran has written a book and she talks about it a lot in that. And it's sort of like the way she convinced herself that she had some sense of control or some sense of power in choosing to do what she was doing. But actually, 
underneath it all it was causing her you know serious psychological issues and really it kind of wasn't a choice at all okay so when you say that they feel like they have power they feel like they have control is the i guess is their own personal experience or their own words that they're telling themselves does that not matter in the context of like the mental health issues that arise with that is is telling themselves that not enough to kind of combat the psychological impact of it Mm. i mean i guess in some instances it could be enough but it's almost like trying to fool yourself in a way okay um it it definitely helps i guess on some level but then you know all of the women that i interviewed did have some mental health issues and i can't say that one has caused the other because that wasn't that wasn't the study but just to note that they all did struggle with mental health to some degree um you mentioned as well one thing that I, I kind of want to jump back to mm-hmm. um, is the kind of is when the experience is is different from if their internal experience is different from their kind of ex, what they're putting out there their external body. Um, now I know there's I'm not that well versed in this, but I know that one of the things that I've read about in relation to social media is that the distance gap between what you internally value as a person and what you value in yourself and when that's different to what you put out in the world that 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 kind of distance between who you are as a person and the way you portray yourself can actually create some sort of mental health related stuff like it's obviously very difficult to if you if you don't value um for example looks and appearance and that's not something that's high on your on your list but you put yourself out there like you do and you and you do that then it can cause its own kind of issues do you feel like there is that kind of um discrepancy with the maybe the women that you've worked with that internally they don't really value that but maybe they feel like they they have to or that's the way they get by yeah exactly that's the way that they've figured out that they're able to kind of make a life for themselves that's the way that they're able to function and exist um but I think, yeah, with that comes a disconnection from your true self, essentially. Um, and that can cause a lot of problems. Um, but I think one thing about the, the women that I interviewed in particular was most of them came from childhoods or backgrounds in which they had experienced some sort of trauma or abuse. So it was kind of like, as I mentioned earlier, it was kind of like they had learned that their bodies existed to be used or that their bodies could be used by other people in that way so then when they got older it was almost like the selling sex kind of fit with their perception of themselves and of their bodies and is that something that's commonly found in the research that that people who go into maybe this industry or this this trade or or those kind of objectifying um trades or those objectifying careers that they have potentially predispositions of of mental health issues or have experienced some mental health difficulties in the past for example something traumatic yeah um like not a lot of research has been done on that particularly in terms of sex workers but there's one other study that i know of done by maddie coy and she's based in london and yeah she found a similar thing that the women came from kind of experiences of being victimized and being objectified um, and trauma essentially so do you think that when they get into these kind of trades and the objectification continues and then obviously the, I know you're going to talk about in a minute, the kind of themes that you found, but things like 
a lack of, of control and, and a distance from who they really are. Do you think these things potentially exacerbate those mental health issues? Yeah, I definitely think they can. Um, like I said, if you want to cover any more of the concepts, you're welcome to, but otherwise um, we might jump into kind of the details of the study. Yeah, that sounds good. Go ahead. So in terms of your study specifically, I guess, um, if you wouldn't mind kind of giving a background into what the research entailed or, or like who, who was involved, maybe just to give a background of, of what you did before we get into the themes and what you actually found. Yeah, so I interviewed four Irish women um, and they were all currently involved in off-street selling sex. Um, and it was quite a small study, um, despite being linked in with three different organisations around the country to try and get participants. And I think, you know, that speaks volumes to the amount of stigma that still exists and the kind of secrecy and shame around sex work. Um, so, yeah, I had four women and as I said, there were interviews um, kind of open-ended questions, trying to be as exploratory as possible. With, with the difficulty in, in getting participants, do you know, this could be a completely, <laughs> uh, this could be a question that you might not be able to answer, but mm. are there many women at the moment engaged in selling sex in Ireland? Well, there's a lot of organizations in Ireland that work with women who sell sex. Okay. So, Yes. They're, I couldn't tell you a number. Or yeah, but, but like they that. work with a, a lot of women. Yeah. Okay, so if you wouldn't mind covering maybe the initial theme, um, the yeah. first theme that, that came up for, for you and your research. Yeah, so the first theme was around ownership of the body and connection or disconnection to the body. So with the women, um, all of these questions around ownership came up, you know, whether the body is mine. Is it me? Does it belong to the person who's buying sex from me? Does it, you know, belong to patriarchal society? Um, and it was kind of this confusion around that, like not knowing, not really having a true sense of ownership or agency over their own bodies, but then contrasting that with the fact that they were saying, but I'm choosing to do this work with my body. Um, so again, it was always that kind of back and forth and that confusion. So it's kind of like a struggle for ownership and them kind of questioning whether the bodies are in fact theirs. But again, as I said earlier, all of them talked about learning from a really young age that in fact they don't have ownership, whether that was, you know, through abuse or trauma or, or just through other experiences. And were they aware that they maybe didn't have control or, or had this kind of um, the ambivalence? Were they aware of that or was it something like, they were saying they have control and they were saying they owned their body and chose what they wanted to do, but their experiences said differently. Or was it a bit of both? Yeah, it was a bit of both. So really interesting. So yeah, the way they talked about their bodies indicated that they don't have that sense of ownership or don't have that sense of connection. And yet sometimes they would claim to have it. Okay. So what, I don't know if, if you delve this deep in those interviews but like what kind of experiences maybe or, or what kind of examples could you give that that maybe portray some of that distance or the the cognitive distance i guess between what they thought of themselves and their actual experiences mm, like even the language they used in talking about their bodies it was always talking about it as like an, an it not as a me and um, yeah. things like that really um, but i guess what did come through in the interviews for all of them was this idea or this sense that having a greater sense of ownership or feeling more connected to their bodies would be 
something more positive so it was kind of like that is where they should be or that's the thing to strive for you know at some level they knew that it may be better potentially to have a greater sense of connection or a greater sense of ownership which again kind of indicated that at some level they realized they don't and I think with things like this it's not fixed it's not a sense of you know you either have a sense of ownership or connection or you don't it can change day to day minute to minute depending on what's going on okay um in relation to that when you say that they that they think it it's going to benefit them they think it's going to benefit them not to be doing what they're doing is that what is that what they were getting across to you well, they didn't say that specifically, but yeah. I think, yeah, there was an underlying sense that there was something maybe wrong or something slightly off with the ways that they were using their bodies. Okay. Um, and a lot of them, you know, would talk about their bodies in terms of, you know, their body being useful or certain body parts being useful in that they could make money from them or, you know, they talked about their appearance and feeling as though they had to wear makeup and to put pictures up on the websites that they advertised on and things like that. So it was always kind of talking about the body as an object and connecting into that part of the body, not connecting to the body as a subject, the body that I am. So it was kind of like that was forgotten. I think that's really interesting because that's kind of one of the concepts that I thought related to the wider population. Yeah. Because I know from personal experience and, and talking to my own friends that there is this pressure in the society we live in to always look well and some people I know who don't go out without makeup for example and like you said they feel pressure to wear makeup all the time I can definitely see how this translate, translates to other people because there must be a sense of anxiety or pressure on the self to always appear a certain way or always um, I guess live up to society standards and if society standards is objectifying women or that their appearance is their kind of primary their primary value then I can see how that can absolutely have a, an impact on, on somebody's mental health yeah exactly so it's kind of like putting all the emphasis on the way the body looks on the objective body um, and in doing that forgetting about the self and the body that I am the subjective body yeah. um, just one of the points I wanted to make or one of the points I wanted to cover was was cognitive dissonance specifically could you explain what that is in simple terms? No. Um, it's kind of like a mismatch between what you say you think and then what actually comes out in terms of your experiences and the language that you use. Okay. It's probably not the greatest definition. <laughs> um, but uh, what you're saying is it's essentially what, what, when, you're, when your words and what you're saying doesn't really match to your actions or your behaviours or... Is that yes? There you go. And is that a is that a common theme? And like I know you've picked out three themes specifically that you found from your research. Is that cognitive dissonance present in in all of them? Do you feel? Um, in the one I just spoke about, and in the one I'm about to speak about next. Okay, which is yeah. So the one I'm looking at next is the female body as the site of a power struggle. Um, so what came up in that one is, again, that all of these women had had some sort of experience of being victimised and their sense that we do live in a man's world, and those are their words, not mine, even though I agree. <laughs> um, and talking about how these women use their bodies in a particular way to give them a sense of power 
over men. So this is kind of their attempt at regaining a sense of power. Um, and it's kind of an ongoing effort, I suppose. And I can link that into the power threat meaning framework. Which is what for the uh, people at home who, who don't study psychology? Um, yeah, so the power threat meaning framework, it was developed by the British Psychological Society and Lucy Johnstone in 2018. Um, and it's kind of an alternative way of conceptualizing or understanding mental health difficulties. So it asks questions like, how has power operated on you in your life? Um, and what have you done to kind of survive in that context? And how have you understood what's going on? Um, so that was kind of really applicable here. So how does that tie into, for example, the, the participants that you had? Mm. So yeah, coming from backgrounds and stories in which power had essentially been taken from them, the way that they have learned to survive and learn to cope and get through is to convince themselves or tell themselves that they have a sense of power in the work that they're doing. So that is the idea that they're choosing what they do, they're kind of in control and they have ownership and, and they can, I guess, like I said, control what, what they do and, and have power over, for example, a man that, that hires them. Yeah, and I think that was that's the main point really in that for these participants, having power meant having power over a man. Um, so it wasn't a sense of, you know, intrinsic personal power, like power that I have just because I exist. It was, I only get a sense of power when I do this because power has been taken from me in, in other areas of my life. When you say power has been taken from them in other areas of the life, do you have any maybe examples or, or experiences that any of your participants gave you maybe that, that showed lack of, of power in other areas? Yeah, well, two of the participants had experienced sexual abuse in childhood. Okay. Um, so I guess kind of essentially the ultimate loss of power and autonomy and ownership. Um, yeah. Was that um, was that kind of the, I guess, was that the background that was shown throughout? Were that, was that common amongst all four or was that just two specifically? Or, or what were the other backgrounds maybe of, of the other participants? Um, yeah, sexual abuse was with two of them. Um, and another one, it was more the kind of family and environment that she had grown up in in terms of religion, like a lot of shame and kind of verbal abuse, that type of trauma, like right. emotional trauma. Okay. Um, one of the participants was a little bit different, though, um, which is interesting if I could talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. She kind of had a much greater sense of connection to her body. Um, she was much more at ease in her body in the way she spoke about it. She talked about her body as being me rather than being an it. Um, and she talked about connecting to her body through sports and movement and all of this. Um, and she was actually the only one who didn't have some sort of a history of trauma or didn't disclose a history of trauma to me anyway. Um, so I think that was really interesting to note. That is quite interesting. And when you say she had um, these kind of more positive experiences with her own body, were those past experiences or that, was that specifically in the present? Um, both, I think. Both. Yeah. yeah, she did talk about kind of the journey that she went on, though, um, realizing at one point that she wasn't as connected to her body as she might have wanted to be. 
um, and then taking up sports and how that helped her. Yeah. Oh, that's quite interesting. Yeah. And um, just going back to the the power thing that you were talking about, the power of struggle, um, specifically. Do you think, from your experience and and interviewing these participants, um, do you think that it what they're doing does help them gain any sense of power from from what they've disclosed to you? I think it can. Yeah, it does on a surface level. However, um, all of them in the interviews talked about instances when they were involved in selling sex, when power was very, very obviously taken from them and taken back by the man. Um, So examples of them being threatened, you know, people, men putting hands around their throats, violence, things like that. Um, And that was when it really kind of, during those examples, when it really came to light that actually that realization that they don't really have power. The power is always with the man, it's with the paying customer ultimately. When you're speaking about that kind of power struggle, it's, um, it's, it's quite, it seems quite obvious to me that those aren't experiences of a powerful situation and like where, where do these words come from or, or what's, what's their motivation for saying these words that they, they feel like they do have power and like you said on a surface level it does feel powerful mm-hmm. but when those experiences don't really match again I guess it's, it's cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. a little bit is it? Yeah. Um, what does that do for them? Is it, is it some sort of comfort to try, try and maybe get them through or, or allow them to continue to engage in what they, they might need to engage in? Yeah, I kind of think it's a way of surviving. Like, I think we all need to tell ourselves we have some sense of power or agency in the world. Um, and it's like, this is the only way for them that they were able to, to navigate that or to figure that out. Um, and I think it's kind of an, it seemed for them anyway, it's like an ongoing struggle of trying to convince themselves that they have power. And with the three who did experience some kind of trauma and abuse, you know, power was taken from them at such a very, very young age. So they never really got a chance to develop that sort of intrinsic personal power that maybe some other people might have. And then finally, your your last theme Um which is the role of a woman as a mother. Yeah, so that theme was a bit different. Um, and I guess the, a part of it anyway talks about the women's mothers and the roles that they had to play in the development of the body self relationship and body shame and these ideas around power. So for three of the women out of the four, and they all talked about quite negative experiences with their own mothers. So being shamed for the way they looked. One was repeatedly called fat and told to stop eating by her mother. Um, and, you know, others were told not to dress a certain way. Don't wear short skirts and, and things like that. Um, so again, kind of putting the emphasis from a really young age on the body as an object. And the one participant who I said, who I mentioned earlier, who had that kind of greater sense of connection, she actually spoke of a really strong relationship with her mother. Um, Her mother knows she's involved in sex work. She talked about the support she got from her growing up. Um, So again, I can't say, you know, definitively that that's the reason why she has a greater sense of connection, but it's an interesting kind of correlation. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know potentially there could be mothers or future mothers, especially um, listening 
good advice for promoting a positive, I guess, body image or, or sense of self for, for parents, for their children? Obviously, you've just mentioned how not to do it yeah. by, by kind of shaming and, and putting a lot of emphasis on the body and the size and, and I guess not promoting that that's their value. But what are the kind of positive parenting aspects around this area? I think language is so important. I, the way that we talk about the body and um, talk about my body as me, not as it, not as a thing. Um, and to think about, you know, how I feel in my body. So we know emotions have a bodily component. So encouraging people, kids, everyone in general to try and connect into that um, and to recognize those kind of internal bodily sensations Rather than only thinking about, you know, how I dress my body, how I present my body to the world, the body that I see when I look in the mirror. So moving away from you look great, your hair is this and your body is this and your legs are this and moving towards kind of how do you feel? How are you doing? And what's the kind of, I guess, move towards the internal experience? Exactly. Yeah. And obviously there's a time and place for you look really well as well. Of course. <laughs> I'm not saying that that's not important, but um, that is, uh, I guess, a whole separate podcast. Um, are there any kind of recommendations you'd make? I know one of the questions, um, sorry, just to, to wrap up, those three themes were the three main themes that you found. And the, is there anything else you want to say on the study before I kind of go into one other question that I have for you? Um. I guess just with the study, I tried to kind of show that the women were women before there were women involved in selling sex. And I do think the themes that came up can be applicable to women in general and maybe people in general too. Um, and they're important concepts to, to think about for everyone. Yeah, I definitely think so too. The, the question I wanted to ask you was, for people who have maybe experienced that um, traumatic maybe a traumatic childhood, maybe a traumatic incident or experience. Is there a particular approach that's that's kind of most helpful, if you will? Now, I know being in mental health that there's no one size fits all, but for for people who might struggle with this particular background of, of, of trauma, is there a, a specific route that's most helpful? Well, in terms of therapy, um, I guess the way I think is that I like to create a new therapy for each client that comes and sits in front of me. And I think it's really important to remember that each type of therapy is trying to do the same thing. It's trying to help people. And the theories that the therapy is based on, the theories are all trying to explain the same thing as well. They're trying to explain people and then what happens when things don't go quite right. And, you know, CBT is kind of the buzzword. It's the one that everybody knows about. But there's so many other types of therapy, like humanistic and emotion-focused therapy. Most people probably haven't heard of that. And then psychodynamic therapies that most people don't probably have the the right view on. Um, so That's yeah. really interesting. So, so when when it comes to like specifically for for someone who might have a trauma background, are you kind of saying that there is no one size fits all, or it's it's person dependent on on what maybe their experiences? Yeah, I think it's based on the individual, on what's happened to them, on how they are in the world now, on you know what kind of place they're at in their lives how they are emotionally now, what they can take now. It's based on so many different things. Okay, so there's there's so many variables to say that there is 
one specific there's too many variables to say that there's one specific way of, of doing things right yeah it's not a case of just kind of picking a particular therapy and throwing it at a person and hoping it fits it's more about understanding the person and how they'll fit yeah okay and obviously i presume that therapy you think is the way forward for anyone who has experience maybe a traumatic experience or is struggling with their mental health i do yeah <laughs> i'm glad we're in agreement there um is there anything you want to say in terms of recommendations or just kind of wrapping up what we've spoken about before we um say goodbye because we're i know we're running short on time um i guess yeah just to close for everyone to kind of reflect and think on how they live in their bodies how we relate to our bodies, how we talk about our bodies um, and trying to kind of connect into those internal experiences, those emotions and see what that's like. I'd imagine that's a lot of fun for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Molly Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. 